Welcome back to Autism Confidential, the podcast from the National Council on Severe Autism. I am your host today, Jill Escher. I'm president of NCSA. And this is part two of our mini series on ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. I encourage you to listen to the last episode uh, where we introduced what ECT is and we had um, two mothers uh, talking about um, ECT, the, you know, the story in their families, how ECT was used and how it was beneficial. Um, and we're going to uh, continue that discussion today with our three guests. Amy Lutz, say hello. Hi, Jill. Hi. Uh, Dr. Lee Wachtel from Kennedy Krieger Institute. Welcome hello. back. And uh, Jenny Goldstein, Dr. Jenny Goldstein, who comes to us from Israel. Hello, I Dr. Goldstein. Thank you. Um, so uh, picking up where we left off, uh, Dr. Wachtel, uh, we just heard two moms talking about how beneficial ECT has been for their, their sons. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the research says about ECT's risks and its efficacies, not only in autism, but I know it's, it's very widely used, um, for example, for depression. Um, so maybe you are, you know, where, where other treatments haven't been, um, um, you know, beneficial. What can you tell us about the research? Um, so the research is actually um, surprisingly um, in direct contrast to all the stigma and negative press that ECT gets. And the research has been conducted on ECT um, pretty much over the past like decades since its inception has repeatedly demonstrated that ECT provides a rapid and robust response is highly efficacious and safe for the right conditions. So um, ECT is a treatment that's used for major depression, um, bipolar depression, acute mania, psychotic disorders, um, catatonic presentations. And as I mentioned um, in the first podcast, um, sometimes neuroleptic malignant syndrome and Parkinson's. And it's important to keep in mind that um, ECT, so ECT is like the oldest agent in the psychiatric armamentarium. And there's a reason why it's still there and still going strong um, over 80 years after its inception. So somewhat of a, a misnomer, you know, once medications started to hit the market, that things could be swallowed and all psychiatric ills could be um, alleviated by psychotropic medication. That was the hope, especially, you know, when Thorazine and other antipsychotics hit the market, that this would be like a new world and we would no longer have to deal with like severe mental illness. Um, but what we have seen is that there are many people who develop very significant treatment refractory um, mental illness of um, various forms. And um, in the United States, um, ECT is most commonly used for major depression. And there has been significant research over the course of, of many years looking at its efficacy in major depression. Um, probably the most well-known studies would have been the core and CUC studies, which were multi-site trials, um, including um, multiple medical centers, academic medical centers um, across the United States, um, looking at various components of ECT, including electrode, place, electrode placement, um, duration of treatment, um, uh, concomitant medication management um, after acute ECT. And then more recently, um, there were the um, multi-center PRIDE studies, where the acronym stands for promoting um, remission of depression in the elderly, um, looking at 
and efficacy, particularly in that age group. Um, the average age of individual receiving ECT in the U.S. Um, is usually an elderly person, and so for treatment refractory depression in the elderly, um, that it's not an uncommon implementation. And the, re the literature is like astoundingly amazing. So if you look at like the core and CUC, CUC studies, I mean, they demonstrate about an 86% remission rate for um, bilateral ECT and somewhere in the mid 50% for um, unilateral ECT, which is just incredible because there is no drug that offers um, a response rate anywhere near that. What's also really exciting about ECT is that ECT works quickly. And so, so most psychotropic medications with the exception of stimulants or benzodiazepines don't work immediately. They work over time. Um, oftentimes that time course, it could be on the order of weeks. And um, many people don't respond to the first medication. By the time you get to needing ECT, you probably have failed many medications. And during that time period, there's just significant morbidity that's accruing in terms of patients suffering from all the collateral symptoms of depression, like being chronically suicidal or attempting to harm themselves or not eating or just being completely um, incapacitated from a psychosocial perspective. Um, and ECT, like really when the situation is dire, ECT can be counted on to work very quickly. Um, the average course of treatment, um, if you look back at those uh, multi-site trials, um, was probably on the order of like eight or nine treatments. Um, for before patients re reach remission. And so that's like an investment if ECT is provided on a thrice weekly basis. That's a very small investment of like three weeks of time to bring somebody from a clinically devastated situation to one of vastly improved health. Um, so in terms of like a risk benefit side effects of ECT, so everybody like decries, you know, ECT as something that leads to um, memory, memory loss. And before we talk about that, I will say that the most common side effect of ECT is a headache. The second most common side effect of ECT is nausea and vomiting. And that's the same in both adults and um, in children. And that may be from the procedure itself. It may also be from the anesthesia. So many people experience this type of response to anesthesia. Both of those side effects are readily manageable. If people develop headaches um, after ECT, they can be provided with Toradol in the IV before they even wake up. They can also receive Zofran in the IV before they even wake up if they are ones to um, develop uh, nausea and vomiting. Um, some people complain that they have like mild like muscle discomfort. Um, ECT is important to keep in mind, as we talked in the first podcast, in um, pretty much like all westernized countries, ECT is done under complete neuromuscular blockade, anesthesia, and with ongoing oxygenation of the patient. When ECT was provided in the past without neuromuscular blockade, this is when you saw, you know, the images of patients having the physical, outwardly physical manifestation of a seizure. And um, this, this was a problem in like the 50s and the 60s. Um, patients had to be like restrained with sheets if they thrashed around, particularly elderly patients, they could break um, break bones, have um, fractures. In, and there's a, you have to be sure to, for example, in the elderly to take out um, dentures and look for loose teeth because patients will clamp down in their mouth um, with ECT. Um, now when ECT is performed with neuromuscular blockade, the risk of any type of like physical discomfort from movement is minimal to none because during the procedure, the only part of the person's body that you see actually moving is um, usually a finger or a toe on the limb that has the blood pressure cuff. Otherwise, there, there is no movement, um, which is pretty surprising. Most people imagine that it's going to be like a big production and there's going to be a lot of like wild and scary movements that simply like does not happen. Um, when you watch a procedure, it's actually kind of, kind of boring. Um, 
And um, so the the issue that people always talk about is um, memory. And um, so ECT has been associated with transient anterograde and retrograde memory loss. So that would be um, memory loss for the period like um, before the before the treatment and then after. Um, and it's important to like keep in mind like what does that really mean? So when people wake up from ECT, there's often a time period, um, usually on the course of like several minutes when they may be disoriented, they may be delirious, um, they not, may not be answering um, questions on a mini mental status exam the way they might have an hour previously. Um, it's also important to keep in mind though that the vast majority of people who receive ECT are already suffering from very significant psychiatric pathology. And if you did like memory or educational um, testing or any type of psychological testing on somebody who you know tried to slit his throat last week, probably not gonna score so well. Um, and it becomes very difficult sometimes to separate out any effects of ECT from like the underlying psychiatric illness that the person was suffering from to begin with. Um, we do know from the research and um, that's I'm research gonna butt in for just a second because I okay. want to ask Amy and Jenny, have you seen, I mean, I know it's very hard with you, Amy, uh, to, to gauge memory loss, but have you seen any of these kinds of downsides in your sons? Uh, no, in fact, I was pretty much astonished. The first, at our very first, I was very prepared for all of this. And at the very first, our very first ECT treatment, Jonah came out of the anesthesia and like picked up the conversation right where he had gone, you know, um, what we were talking about before he um, went under, which was basically about the black and white cookie he wanted to get, you know, when it was over because he was hungry. So like, it was very, you know, it, it was almost like nothing had happened in the middle. And I will say it is very hard to judge, um, you know, kind of cognitive effects in kids like, like my son. But there, you know, that's why a lot of ECT researchers have been very interested in doing neuropsychiatric testing to ask this question. Like for Jonah, I can say, um, before he started ECT at his school at the time, he was he was mastering seven tasks a month. You know, and a task could be anything from learning like the attributes of like how to sort, you know, pictures of vehicles versus pictures of animals, or it could be. Um, could be anything doing some math or, or answering a question, a reading comprehension question. But after ECT, just a few months after he started, he was mastering 54 skills a month. Like his, just his, his achievement in school, his educational growth was astonishing. And I, it, it, I think it was just because he was not spending half the day in timeout as they really tried to keep everybody safe in, in, you know, in that, in his program there, but no, we haven't seen anything. And they have done some really interesting um studies on kids who've gotten ECT because of course researchers are concerned about the development of teens you know and young people and the study that I found the most interesting was I think was a French study I'm sure Lee is familiar with it where they looked at teens who had been hospitalized with different psychiatric illnesses and some of them had got chosen to get ECT and some of them hadn't and been treated by um, you know by drugs primarily and then like five years later they ran those 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 patients through a battery of neuropsychiatric testing to see if the, the teens who adopted for ECT had any kind of impairments in memory or um, any kind of cognitive skills. And they found that no, there was, there was no difference in those groups in terms of their cognitive performance. So it's not that ECT researchers are not mm. interested or don't care, they're very interested. And there is some data about this, although it's very hard to kind of do the classic 
you know, placebo double blind study on ECT because it crosses all kinds of ethical boundaries um, to put a, a kid who's either severely catatonic or has very aggressive behaviors under general anesthesia, not give them the electrical stimulus and then send them home to whatever kind of consequences might emerge from that. So that kind of research will never be done. But there are I think now 15,000 citations on PubMed speaking to the safety and efficacy of ECT in different populations. Yeah, yeah. and what was really cool also about the, the French study is that ultimately they found that what predicted um, patients' wellness was adherence to treatment, whether that was psychotropics or ECT, what predicted the patients doing well at that follow-up point was whether they were compliant with treatment, which like makes like, perfect sense. Like, yeah, if it works for you and you don't do it, you're not going to do that. <laughs> so Jenny, um, I know that you, you had talked to your son's improvement right after ECT. So I, I assume that his uh, cognitive outcomes were not worsened by. So a, a couple of thoughts. One is absolutely not. We haven't seen any of that kind of cognitive issue and, and specifically memory. I was worried about because one of the quirky things about Yehuda is that his memory is eerily, eerily, eerily strong. And he remembers things that happened to the family when he was four and five and talks about them as though they happen now. And I was worried that that would stop and that his memory would be affected in some way, whether it be short term or long term. And we haven't seen any of that. But in addition, there's been a very funny outcome of the second round of ECT. Yehuda was started on Ritalin when he was four years old. We and he could not function without his Ritalin in his system. You know, I would rather leave home without food and water and <laughs> remember the Ritalin back in the day. And after the second round of ECT, he does not need Ritalin anymore. It, it really went from a child who couldn't function without Ritalin to a child who does not need Ritalin. How to explain it? But I'm, I'm bringing that up because if anything, we've seen a, an improvement in his cognitive abilities, specifically in his executive function, since he settled down with ECT. So uh, I think that a lot of those fears can be laid to rest for many kids. Yeah. Great to know. Well, I, wa I want to move on. Um, before I, we get to the policy and politics of ECT, which I think is a really big issue, um, I just want to ask one more question of Dr. Wachtel here, which is what biologically changes in the brain? What does ECT physically do to produce these results? So that's like a great question. I think that's always been like the, the million dollar question as well. I mean, for everybody like who has a loved one who's received ECT and for researchers and people in the field um, since the beginning. Um, and I would say that unfortunately, nobody can tell you exactly like what happens um, to the brain during ECT, uh, but we do have a lot of clues. And I think that there is, a, so generally when you think about like our response to ECT and how ECT is affecting the brain, you need to look at like what's happening acutely and what's happening like long-term. And um, it's thought that acutely induction of that seizure in the brain leads to like a huge like um, neuroendocrine cascade because ECT impacts the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. And um, it's thought that the um, endocrine changes that occur in ECT um, with subsequent like increased availability in the cerebrospinal fluid of whatever neuroendocrine components were not sufficient in the patient's presentation 
is probably um, linked to the immediate response. Um, and some of those thoughts are kind of derived out of the idea of, uh, well, out of the knowledge that we have of um, true melancholia, so real major depression, as actually, you know, an endocrine disturbance that can be um, diagnosed with a dexamethasone suppression test. We know in catatonia as well that acutely after ACT, um, the amount of um, GABA and in uh, the availability of GABA in the cerebral spinal fluid is like increased like multifold. So there are acute changes with ECT. And this is why in some conditions, particularly in catatonia, you will see like very rapid response, sometimes even after like one treatment. It's similar also in very severe depression. Um, many patients who are acutely suicidal after one, two, three ECT may have that very um, dire symptom alleviated. And they're also, it's also known that there's a lot of like kind of long-term and like downstream changes in ECT that really get to like brain architecture. So it's known that ECT over the course of time will increase the expression of brain-derived neurotrophic factor and also, also um, vascular endothelial growth factor. And both of those growth factors um, affect the way like neurons and vasculature proliferates. And so this gets to how like the brain talks to itself or how like the different parts of the brain talk to themselves. And so it's estimated that over time, there really are, is like enhanced or restored, repaired um, connectivity, new connectivity that's laid down um, within the brain over time. Um, unfortunately, what we also know is that um, there's it, it doesn't seem that ECT confers any type of cure, but rather like fixes the problem acutely similar to dialysis or insulin for diabetes, or even like, you know, medications for hypertension. And that um, for most patients, uh, there's some degree of requiring ongoing um, ECT to keep them healthy. And that may be more commonly seen in autism where the underlying autistic brain also drives the presentation as compared to a typically developing person, say with um, an episodic disorder, like um, an affective illness who doesn't have anything else um, in terms of an underlying baseline abnormalities in the autistic brain driving their presentation. So they may not need as much ECT as some of our autistic um, patients have required. Got it. Um... Wow. That was a lot. That's going to be a lot for people to digest. <laughs> you, you guys didn't get past neuroendocrine. You were like, <laughs> but, um, but uh, no. So basically changing the hormone signaling on one level and also possibly changing the, uh, the way neurons connect over time. And uh, hopefully we'll learn more about it with more research. But now I finally want to move to our final topic, which is really the policy and politics of ECT. Um, often when ECT is mentioned, it is attacked as a form of torture. Um, and, uh, you know, we have seen restrictive legislation around ECT. Amy, you know a lot about this in the U.S. Um, I'm wondering if you can give us a little overview of where things stand with ECT. Are things getting better? Who are the people who are, are attacking this as a, a modality, an intervention? Let us know. Well, that's a lot of parts to <laughs> a lot that of question. questions, and it's interesting. So I'll, I'm going to jump to um, the your question about whether things are getting better, and and partly I would say yes. I do think that anti ECT kind of advocacy has died down. Uh, when I, I wrote a book on our experience with ECT, and also on several other families' experience with ECT for their teens, 
And that was published in 2014. So I did a lot of research in those years before about what anti-ECT groups were doing. First of all, the Church of Scientology is a big driver of all kinds of anti-psychiatric um, kind of discourse. So, um, and, you know, kind of my feeling about that was if, well, if Scientology is opposed, you know, sign me up. I don't need, that's all I need to know. Um, but there are also psychiatric survivors. So these are people who may have had ECT a long time ago, and uh, they feel that they suffered uh, really profound side effects, memory loss. Um, as Lee suggested, though, it's it's really difficult to attribute, you know, what that memory loss, what, what might have caused it, because when you have really significant depression and you've also been taking a lot of medications that also might have side effects of, of affecting your memory, it's hard to, un and also you're older now, you're a lot older now, it's really hard to know what, what caused that memory loss. Um, but then when I went back recently to see what those anti-ECT uh, anti people were doing on their websites and in their groups, I didn't find much activity. So I don't know uh, why that is. But um, so legally speaking, um, ECT is illegal in, in every state. The, the issue that, um, that people, our listeners might run into is that it's not legal for kids in every state. So, and again, this is older information. I haven't looked into if this has changed recently, but um, as far as I know, and Lee, you can correct me if I'm wrong, there are five states that really highly restrict or even prohibit uh, ECT for minors. And that includes California, where you are, Jill, uh, Colorado, Tennessee, um, Texas, and I can't remember what, maybe Louisiana, uh, what that was the last state. And so I knew a family who, um, who they lived in California and they had to fly to, I think, Utah like every week because their son had really acute catatonia and they had to actually get him on an airplane to get his, his ECT. Um, and so when you know. say children, yeah. do you mean under age 18 uh, or 16? I think it kind of depends on the state. Okay. Um, and your, your, your accessibility to ECT is going to depend a lot on um, where you live. So, uh, so, you know, I knew a family, I knew, I think Lee treated this patient, they were from Hawaii. And uh, this young woman had actually already blinded herself from repetitive self-injury. Uh, there was no ECT in Hawaii available for anybody, I believe at the time. I don't know if that's still the case. And when this young woman moved to a group home in, uh, I think in Utah, and she was able to access ECT, it was incredibly effective in stopping her self-injurious behaviors, but it was too late to do anything about her eyesight. So a lot of accessibility to ECT is going to depend on where you live. If you live in like the Northeast corridor between like, you know, Baltimore, where Lee is, and up to like Boston, there's a lot of ECT that's available. And like a lot of things in the middle part of the country, it may not be as, uh, as accessible, although there are centers where there's a lot of ECT practice and research at Michigan and um, trying to think where else, um, but uh, it, it's hard. It can be hard to access. How, have there been efforts to try to change the laws to increase access for minors? Um, you know, in these, I, I'm in California, for example, in California, are you aware? Well, I am aware of a mom in California who did succeed in getting ECT for her for her kid. Now, I, I think it was not it didn't it didn't help that kid, but somehow she did it. I don't know how she um, 
who she talked to or how she made it happen. Uh, the kid was in really bad shape and, um, and somehow she convinced them to allow it. I do know that there have been attempts recently to, to ban the use of ECT uh, in kids in the last couple of years. And it kind of follows a similar pattern. And it's, it's really depressing on how the legal process works. It happened in Pennsylvania. Someone proposed a law to ban ECT in kids under 16, because I mean, it really sounded like a bill written by Scientologists. You know, this mm. is this is, it had no research at all. It was like, this is, kids are being tortured. It talked about like all these five-year-olds who are being given ECT. I've never heard of anything like that. And then it said, and three teenagers are being given ECT. And I was like, well, I know those who those three people are. And what happened was it triggered an immediate response from, from the Pennsylvania Psychiatric Association, from, from me, from other, from other families who have gotten ECT. And we reached out and uh, I actually spoke to that was proposed by a legislator who really prides himself on being an ally to the intellectually and developmentally disabled. And I don't know who put a bug in his ear, but I spoke to a colleague of his who had co-signed the bill. And I was like, you know, how can you have proposed this bill? Don't you guys have staff to do the research to to before you put something like this out there? And he was like, no, well, you know, I was asked to sign it and it sounded like, mm -hmm. you know, it was bad news. So I just signed it. And that was, and then when, you know, given <sighs> the pressure from, from experts, you know, psychiatrists in the state and academics and, and families, they immediately withdrew the bill. It never came to, to a vote and it didn't pass. But I think the same thing happened in New York. It's like somehow it circulated in Maryland. It circulated yeah. in Maryland. Yeah, somebody, some anti-ECT person gets the ear of a sympathetic legislator who does zero research and just proposes it. And then when kind of the tide of expert opinion rolls in to kind of show that person why this, this is ill-advised, it's withdrawn. So there's been no new legislation that's been passed to restrict ECT, but it's not for a lack of trying. Jenny, what's the political zeitgeist in Israel around it? Uh, our experience was actually very smooth. The, the issue was really inpatient versus outpatient, but ECT is accepted here and it's accepted here in children, not, not young children. I think over, you know, I don't want to say for sure, but teenagers for sure, that for sure, I don't want to say a specific age, but teenagers for sure, but inpatient more than outpatient. But it, it was actually not as difficult as I was anticipating to get the approval uh, done. Um, it did help to have Lee behind me. Uh, Lee is a very well-respected name in the field. And it was helpful to, to be able to use her name and use her input to move things forward. But I am very grateful that uh, that was actually not our issue. Our issue was more the diagnostic part as opposed to the obtaining treatment. Got it. Okay, well... Um, ladies, we are at the end of our episode here, but before we sign off, I would like to know if you have any final comments for our audience. Let's start with Dr. Wachtel. Um, let's see. I mean, I guess in terms of like take home points when people are considering ECT um, in an individual with autism, it's, you know, it's always important to keep in mind that um, ECT, of course, does not cure autism. It also doesn't cure intellectual disability or any other type of neurodevelopmental disabilities. But what ECT can do is confer um, dramatic benefit for a variety of affective, psychotic, or catatonic presentations that could sometimes include um, repetitive self-injurious behavior 
that is not able to be um, effectively tre treated with behavioral intervention. And um, ECT can really be like a lifesaver and a game changer. And um, despite all of the negative that we hear about ECT, ECT is highly safe and efficacious. And 99% of the caution and negativity um, comes from the media, not from science. So um, I always remind people of that, you know, when thinking about treatments, because we want to be looking at the science, not at um, the latest, um, the latest uh, sounds being emitted from Hollywood. Thank you. Uh, Jenny, any final words? Uh, yeah, I guess in addition to all that has been said already, I would, I would add that I think the journey of being a parent whose child has autism and where ECT has played such a major role in our life is so poignant and symbolic of how much hope you need to hold on to and how much love you have to constantly infuse into your child when your child is facing a life with autism. And I, I think that that ultimately is what carried us through this journey. A lot of hope, we did not give up, and a lot of love, and a lot of holding on to the belief that we were going to get our kid back somehow. Um, there were a couple of professionals along the way who said to me things like, well, you know, kids with special needs, sometimes they deteriorate and it just happens. And I refused to allow for that to be our philosophy. Mm. And I would, I would really just like to encourage parents never to give up. Thank you. And finally, Amy Lutz. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with what Lee and Jenny said. And I would just add a lot of people reach out to me still to ask about if they think, you know, they think their kids might be good candidates for ECT. And usually the thing that I, my, my opening question is whether or not their kids' behaviors are driven by, uh, by kind of factors in the environment. In other words, like if their kids are attacking their teachers specifically because they want to get out of work or they want to access a cookie, they want attention from their parents, like this isn't something that ECT can stop typically. Uh, but if their kids' behaviors are um, are unpredictable, they happen across all environments kind of there and without any clear environmental triggers, then their kids might be really good candidates for ECT. And it's certainly worth a try because as has been stressed by uh, by others on this call, on this meeting, you know, it, you know, pretty quickly whether it's going to work or not. And the, and the effect can be absolutely dramatic. Well, thank you so, so, so much, Dr. Lutz, Dr. Goldstein, Dr. Wachtel. Um, this mini series on ECT has been incredibly informative. And I really thank you for your expertise and your time. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Confidential. If you'd like to learn more, share an idea for an episode, or become a sponsor, please visit us at autismconfidential.org. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual speakers. Content presented is for informational purposes only, and we do not provide any medical or legal advice. Thank you.